good morning. It is our pleasure to gather together today as God's people, as his called out ones, his, um, his people gathered together in the Lord's name. And so um, I'm going to ask you really quickly to take out your uh, Bibles. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, uh, there's one under your chairs or in that, in that row somewhere. And we're going to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And while you're turning there, my name is Andy Claude. I am one of the pastors here at Christ Church, and it is a great honor to be able to preach to you today. Um, it's not every church, again, that, that gives its pastors opportunities to share the pulpit, but I am thankful to do that. It is um, a huge grace to me to be able to declare the word to you this morning. So um, we've been preaching about the church. We've been in the book of Ephesians, and then where uh, Paul took a sidestep to say, I'm referring to Christ and his church. We, are going, we have been studying wh- what the church is, who it comprises, who leads the church, what the church's authority is, where it lies in, the scriptures as being ultimately authoritative over everything. And um, then we talked about why we were a Baptist church, and last week we talked about why we gather together on the Lord's Day, on, on Sunday. So now we come to uh, kind of the, the next step, and this is church membership. Um, and we're going to look at 1 Corinthians today because um, though that's a topical sermon, we try to be as expositional as possible. We want to find a text that demonstrates who are, who are the church and what do they do? And every single study I've ever seen on church membership refers back to this chapter. It's not the easiest chapter, as, it, as we'll see, it deals with some pretty serious sin, but it is a beautiful chapter because we see who God's people are and how we operate. So um, before we go any further, uh, let's pray and ask that God would open his word to us because in our own power and our own strength, we cannot comprehend his word. It takes the Holy Spirit working in us and illuminating his text. So let's pray to that effect. God, we love you. As we sang about our righteousness being in Jesus' life, and our debt was paid by Jesus' death. Our weary load was borne by him, and he alone can give us rest. Jesus, we affirm that this morning, that our rest is in you, our hope is in you, and all the glory belongs to you. So Holy Spirit, we pray that you would illuminate this text for us this morning, that you would open our eyes to what you would have to say to us about church membership, and that you would receive the glory from everything that is said and done. I pray that you would give me courage and boldness to declare your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, a little bit of background on the book of 1 Corinthians. We haven't preached in 1 Corinthians yet as a church, and so this is our first kind of crack at it. Um, a little bit of background on, on it is the Paul was serving in the city of Corinth, which is a pagan city, uh, for about 18 months with Apollos, Priscilla, and Aquila, his fellow workers in the gospel, to plant this church, very much like we're doing, in a, very, um, in a city that was very pagan. So as we know here in, in Carbondale, we have a lot of international uh, folks that, that live here and a lot of different religions represented um, that, uh, 
that that meet in in various in various ways and have a lot of adherence here. And so there's quite a bit of diversity. And it was the same way in Corinth. There was a lot of uh, pagan worship that was going on, and it was also a very uh, sexually explicit city. So very much like Ephesus that we were talking about, sexual immorality was the was the taste and kind of the color of the city. It was very much accepted to that um, extramarital. Um, extramarital fornication and all these type of things were very common in the, in the city of Corinth. So just kind of let that uh, inform what Paul's about to say here. And he is, ri- he is writing from the city of Ephesus. So we talked about last time his work in Ephesus. And as he is working in this city, he begins to hear some things about the church in Corinth that begin to trouble him enough to begin to write multiple letters to them to address certain, uh, certain areas of weakness. And so it's in response to such an area of weakness that he's writing today in 1 Corinthians 5. So without any further ado, let's open the the text together and read through chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And someone shout out the page number if you have it in your pew Bible. 659. By the way, if you don't have a Bible that isn't a good, modern, trustworthy translation, we, we urge you to take that home with you. It's our gift to you. We'd love to see you have a Bible. Um, all right. First Corinthians one, uh, five, starting in verse one. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not even tolerated among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are, uh, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy, or the swindlers, or idolaters. Since then, you need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality, or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. That's the text in its entirety. And we're going to go now verse by verse to look at what's actually happening in here, because it's so easy to miss the forest for the, for the trees in this. And so let's start in verse 1 and, and break, it, break it down. Verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not even tolerated among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. So it's unclear in, in, this, in this verse um, whether this means his current stepmother, that a man is sleeping with his current stepmother, or his father's divorced wife. But either way, it's pretty nasty, right? This is something that the scriptures uh, prohibit in Leviticus uh, 18. But notice this, he says, 
It's a kind that is not even tolerated among the pagans. So recall what kind of city that they're in, one that is very flagrantly um, sexual uh, immorality, and yet even this type of sin is frowned upon in Corinthian society. So that tells you something of the damaging witness this is to the church. If, if the church contains folks who claim Christ and yet are in unrepentant sin, what a horrible witness this is to the, to the church. Um, so notice Paul's disbelief. He says, it is actually reported. Can you hear the, the surprise in his voice? It is actually reported among you. Um, the reason that he's surprised is that Paul assumes that the life of saints look differently than the life of pagans. That there is, as we talked about last time, there's a difference between a pagan and a saint. Uh, he addresses them as saints in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2. Um, so go back and, and read that. Um, 1 Corinthians 1, 2. To the saints who are sanctified, who are being sanctified. That is, the, that is what Paul assumes the church to be. So the life here of a saint is different than that of a pagan that we talked about last time. A saint repents of sin. There's an ongoing repentance. The trajectory of their life has changed. Um, it's not that saints never struggle with sin. It's that they repent of sin. But rather, the life of a pagan is an unrepentance, indulgence of sin. And so, this is why Paul is surprised. Let's keep reading. Uh, verse 2, And you are arrogant. And you are arrogant. Paul accuses the church of being arrogant, but arrogant for what? I'm glad you asked. Um, they are allowing this man to continue in unbroken fellowship with them. And in the outset, that, that appears like graciousness. You know, maybe if this person can continue with us and continue to hear the preaching of the word and continue to, um, continue to be around God's people, eventually he'll be brought to repentance. Uh, this person who claims to be a Christian who is not repenting, yet... What, they're, what is viewed as a spirit of humility and gentleness, Paul calls arrogant because it is in disobedience to Jesus' teaching. Um, let's turn together to Matthew 18, uh, page 568. This will be the only other text that we'll be reading together uh, today. So on page 568 of your pew Bible, it's Matthew 18, we're reading verses 15 through 20. This is Jesus' teaching on what the, what the church is to do, um, how we are to approach someone who is living in unrepentant sin. If a brother sins against you, or if you notice a person in unrepentant sin, this is Jesus' teaching on how to handle the situation. All right, let's read together. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where there are two or three gathered in my name, there I am among them. What a profound passage. That deserves its own sermon. But suffice it to say, Jesus is prescribing a pattern for how the church is to, 
how to churches to approach someone who's in unrepentant sin. Jesus is laying this out. This is what you are to do. And also in this, Jesus gives supernatural authority to the church. Notice this. He says, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Jesus is giving the church supernatural authority, um, which is remarkable. But in this church, in, in Corinth, you'll turn back to Corinthians 5 now, they rejected Jesus' teachings as mere suggestions. They said, yes, Jesus, but we think if, if we do things our way, then this person will continue in repentance. And this is, they were trying to outgrace Jesus. They thought that they were more gracious than Jesus. And this is why Paul calls them arrogant. And you are arrogant. You are disobedient to Jesus. So let's keep going. Ought you not rather to mourn? Ought you not rather to mourn? The posture of the church towards a member who is enslaved, who is caught in sin, shouldn't be boasting. It shouldn't be, yeah, but he's hanging out with us. It should be mourning. There is deep sorrow because this person is enslaved to sin. And he goes on in, in chapter 12 of the same book to say, uh, if one member suffers, all suffer together. And if one member is honored, all rejoice together. So because one of the members of this church is, is in sin, an unrepentant sin, it actually harms the entire body. So let's continue. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if in spirit, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. So Paul's saying here that he has heard enough about this situation that he can make a clear, informed judgment. And he's not even in the same city. Imagine, if this has reached Paul, imagine what the, the reputation of the church is in this city. This sin is well known. This is not something that is, is only an insider issue. This has been, the witness of the church has been damaged by this. This has reached Paul in Ephesus. And he's heard enough about the situation to make a clear, informed judgment. Let's keep going with Paul's instructions to the church. Verse 4. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, really quickly, notice he says when. The assumption of the, Paul, of the Apostle Paul in this, in this chapter is that the church gathers. The church gathers weekly. Just as Jeremy preached last week, the church already gathers. He's not saying to call a special gathering. He's saying as you gather. This is, this is the this posture towards, the, towards gathering. It's something the church is already doing. So corroborating evidence for Jeremy's sermon uh, in this text. So let's keep going. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So the power of the Lord Jesus. What we can take this to be is, like I said, Jesus has given the church supernatural authority. He has given them, as it were, the keys to the kingdom that we read in Matthew 18, whom they recognize as a member of their church, heaven recognizes. So this is, this is incredible. With the power of the Lord Jesus, this is the authority that, that God has given to the church. Deliver this man to Satan. Hmm. Feel the weight of that. Deliver this man to Satan. This means practically in a very practical sense, what the church is doing is disfellowshipping this man. That he, 
is no longer going to be serving in any uh, capacity as a member, but rather is barred from membership and from the Lord's table. That he doesn't, um, that we don't assume that this person is actually saved. Rather, the assumption is that he belongs to Satan. Deliver him to Satan means give him back. He doesn't belong to the church. He is, by his unrepentant sin, has proven that he does not belong to the kingdom of light, but rather the kingdom of darkness. So giving him back. And then go on to the destruction of the flesh. Um, it's not exactly clear what this means, but it does, we do know that it could mean allowing this person to face the physical consequences for their sin. A lot of times, sin comes with physical consequences. We know this, that Paul said when people were mistreating the Lord's Supper, this is the reason why some of you are sick and are even dying. That sin sometimes has physical consequences, but also uh, legal consequences and all these different times. So the church is to stop insulating this man from his consequences, but allowing him to face the consequences of his actions. So that his spirit may be saved. This is probably the most important statement here in this process. The entire point of what we call church discipline, this is, or accountability, this process that Jesus has prescribed, is for the salvation of the person who is in sin. Um, it's not simply to say, well, that person's in sin, he's gone. He's, not, he's never coming back. That person has proven themselves to be uh, the enemy, so therefore we will no longer ever accept him back. But rather, it is to draw this man to repentance. It is to bring rock bottom to this man, as it were, to allow him to feel the weight of his predicament. The point is that he would rejoin the church as a true brother, as a repentant person, that he would be in Christ because he is not in Christ. So, um, and one other assumption that we can make from this verse is that God is sovereign over Satan. So that in God is sovereign over Satan. Satan does not have the upper hand. Satan um, is on a leash. And in fact, what the church is doing in handing him over to Satan, God can use to turn this man to repentance. God can use Satan to turn this man to repentance of his sin. What Satan intends for harm, to destroy the man, notice destruction of the flesh. Satan intends to destroy this man, but God intends to save this man. So, uh, in what way, uh, C.S. Lewis gives us a clue here when he says, God whispers to us in our pleasures and shouts to us in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Often it takes pain to realize the depth of our sin and the weight of our predicament. But God uses that pain for his glory to turn people to Christ. So let's continue. Verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. So Paul here compares the unrepentant man to leaven. Remember from last time, there are two different type of statements in the scriptures, indicatives and imperatives. You guys remember those? Indicatives are truth statements. Imperatives are commands. And so we, we just read a couple of them. Um, he says, let him who has done this thing be removed from among you. That's a command. Paul is giving a command here. And then he says um, a truth statement. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. That is a statement that points to a real truth. 
And so Paul also gives here an amazing indicative that we tend to miss. He says, you really are unleavened. He says of the church, you really are unleavened. So that means we, the church, the people of God, really are unleavened. That those who are uh, not in Christ are leavened and that they are not truly counted among the ranks of God's people. The church are those who are regenerate, those who are born again. Um, because we really are unleavened. So while outsiders are welcome to come and to join with us and to sing with us, there are aspects of membership that um, they are not truly counted among us. Um, the, at the end of the day, uh, when God says, shepherd the, the flock that is among you to the elders, it is those that are in Christ here that are our flock and ultimately that we are responsible for. You really are unleavened. But how did we become unleavened? That's, that's the key question. How did we become God's people? He goes on to say this. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Notice the four here. The four means because. So let's read this, this phrase. You really are unleavened because Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. This is the way. Unless we become puffed up with pride, which is exactly what Paul is working against here. He's saying you're arrogant. He's showing us that the very basis on which we are unleavened is the work of Christ and the work of Christ alone. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. And so when God is, when he's talking about, through Paul, what is a Passover lamb? In the Old Testament, you guys remember the story of Moses and, and God bringing the plagues against Egypt, who was holding God's people captive. And the last and most terrible plague was that of the death of the firstborn that God was going to send the angel of the Lord to kill the firstborn child of every household in Egypt. And he gave um, instructions to his people to select a spotless lamb, to sacrifice this lamb, to spill its blood, and to, and to spread its blood over the doorposts of their homes, to cook and eat this lamb with a hasty meal of unleavened bread and herbs and wine. And that night, as the angel of the Lord passed by the house, he saw the blood on the doorpost, and he skipped over that house. The wrath of God passed over that house. Because the lamb died, the firstborn son was spared. You see that? It took the death of the lamb to spare the firstborn. And ultimately, this is a picture. This is a picture of what Jesus has done for us. Jesus has been sacrificed in our place because Jesus, our Passover lamb, he was spotless. Say so he was sinless. His entire life he lived without sinning against God. He was in perfect fellowship, in communion with God. He was perfectly obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He was a spotless lamb. But not only that, he was sacrificed. He was murdered. His blood was spilled in our place. And by his blood that had been applied to our lives through the Holy Spirit, we have been spared the wrath of God because Jesus was born in our place. He is our Passover lamb. And he now pleads for us at the right hand of the Father and has sent his Holy Spirit into his people to show us our need of him, to cause us to be born again. And this is what we say when we really are unleavened. It is only these people who are counted as the church, those who have been born again. Now, if these things are not true of you, then I ask you today, Place your faith in Christ. 
He is able to save to the uttermost those who place their faith in him. It is through the work of Christ and the work of Christ alone that we are made unleavened, that we are made into the people of God. So let's continue in our text. Verse 8. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Again, if there's a therefore or a wherefore, find out what it's there for. Ha <laughs> ha. Okay. Um, Jesus has been sacrificed. Therefore, therefore, let us not celebrate the festival with the old leaven of malice and evil. Malice and evil are the very reasons Jesus was put to death. Malice and evil are what called for the death of Jesus. It does not befit the people of God to cherish the very sins that murdered Christ. Let me say that again. It does not befit the people of God to cherish the sins, to continue unrepentantly in the very sins that called for the death of Christ. Spurgeon writes this, What an accursed thing is sin, which crucified the Lord Jesus. Do you laugh at it? Will you spend an evening to see a mimic performance of it? Do you roll sin under your tongue as a sweet morsel, and then come on the Lord's Day morning and think to worship him? To worship him? To worship him with sin indulged in your breast? Worship him with sin loved and pampered in your life? Oh, sirs, if I had a dear brother who had been murdered, what would you think of me if I valued the knife which had been crimsoned with his blood? If I made a friend of the murderer and daily consorted with the assassin who drove the dagger into my brother's heart, surely I too must be an accomplice in this crime. He goes on to say, Sin murdered Christ. Will you be a friend to it? Sin pierced the heart of the incarnate God. Can you love it? Oh, that there was an abyss as deep as Christ's misery in which to throw that dagger into its depths that it may never see the light of day again. Be gone, O sin. Thou art banished from the heart where Jesus reigns. And yet this is the very thing that this man was doing. This man continuing in his unrepentant sin was cherishing that sin, that call for Christ's death. He claimed to belong to Christ to continue to practice sin openly and without shame. Paul says here that God's people worship rather with the bread of sincerity and truth. And it is in sincerity and truth that this man must be confronted of his sin. Let's keep reading. Verse 9. I wrote to you not in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. So this is an important caveat that Paul is making here. He's not saying to avoid sinners altogether. Notice the strength of his language. It says here, not at all. Not at all. This is where many churches um, can tend to go astray in Christians. We tend to avoid anybody with the appearance of sin. Those that are of the world who do not bear the name of brother. We avoid those. We say, um, we're going to avoid those people. And yet the people that do claim to be Christians and continue in unrepentant sin, just because they look like us and sound like us, we tend to gravitate towards them. And yet Paul is saying it should be the exact opposite. Um, we are not to isolate ourselves from the world like the Amish, but to be missionaries into going into all the world. 
he clarifies that he's only speaking of those who bear the name of brother, those who claim to be Christians, those that claim to be in Christ and are yet continuing in unrepentant sin. So we are to disfellowship those who think themselves to be uh, Christians and are in unrepentant sin. One who claims Christ yet embraces sin shows his true master. And we are not to allow such a one to continue in unbroken fellowship as it would dull his senses to the weight of his predicament. And this is the crazy thing. Unbroken fellowship with the church of someone who is in unrepentant sin puts a person's soul in more danger than delivering them to Satan. Continuing with the church in unrepentant sin is more dangerous than being formally handed over to Satan. That should cause us to pause next time that we think this to be ungracious. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? He says in verse 12. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So we often tend to understand what judge means, and our culture is uh, automatically assumed to be you're passing eternal judgment, that you are damning people to hell. What Jesus is talking about here, he, he says in, um, in Luke 6.37, he says, Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given unto you. So this is directly following his teaching on the golden rule. Treat others as you would be treated. And so, um, lest we think that Jesus is being ungracious in Matthew 18, realize this is the same Jesus. He is not contradicting himself when he gives us instructions on how to interact with unrepentant sinners. This is the same Jesus who wrote Matthew 18, who spoke Matthew 18. So, judging here is examining the fruit of a person and determining if they are in step with the gospel or not. We are called to do this. Jesus himself said, you will know a tree by its fruit. Thorn bushes do not produce figs, and um, fig trees do not produce thorns. We know a person by their fruits. So this is Jesus telling us to weigh and measure the fruit of other people to determine whether they're in the faith or not. And the scriptures tell us to examine ourselves to see that we are in the faith or not. So this is not running uh, against Jesus' teaching. This is Jesus' teaching. And we are not to do this with unbelieving non-members, as they do not belong to us. Okay? So Jesus' general instructions to the world is you don't go out and you you don't go out and pass judgment on people who do not belong to the church. They have not submitted themselves to the church. They've not made a covenant with us. They have not covenanted to love and to repent with us. They've not covenanted to submit to the elders. So we have no authority over them. They have not, they're not part of us. We have no right to go out and, and make such assumptions. But it is those in the church whom you are to judge, he says. Notice Paul's language here. He says, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Judgment is not in the hands of the elders only, but is actually in the church's hands, in the hands of the church member. It is our responsibility. It is our authority that is given us by Christ. Imagine if uh, a couple were to 
um, were to come in and um, just the, the ridiculousness of us being able to um, this couple were to come in and join us for worship, hear the preaching, and then we stand up and begin to question aloud, are these people really Christians or not? Hmm. Ah, uh, we don't think so. Take a vote. Take a vote. No, they're not Christians. What would they say? We don't even know you. We're not part of you. We haven't submitted ourselves to you. This is kind of the folly of believing that we have this authority over everybody. It's those inside the church whom we are to judge, not those outside. So, um, God judges those outside. So, we've come to the end of our text today. And now, from this text, there are a lot of implications. But before that, we need to ask the question, does church discipline work? Yes. Well, one, God said it does, right? Jesus said it does. Um, but then God has been so gracious as to give us an example of this here in this chapter. And then the beautiful thing is God has, uh, according to most people uh, that I have read, 2 Corinthians actually makes a, a mention to the same man. Would you turn there with me? 2 Corinthians Chapter 2, verse 5 through 11. It is on pa the page that comes directly before 667. <laughs> See, some of you got that, right? <laughs> it is on the page that comes directly before 667. Just kidding. We're not superstitious here. All right. Um, 2 Corinthians 2, verses 5 through 11. So here in, in 2 Corinthians, chapter 2, we're given a picture of what, how this scenario ended up. This person has repented, and Paul is urging the church to accept him back into the church. He said, people were still continuing to stiff-arm him after he was repented. He says, look, you are going to, he's going to be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. You need to welcome him back in. This is, this is, again, this is the end of church discipline. We want to see this person saved, but not only that, we want to see them restored back to the church. And it worked. It worked. Uh, we saw this man turn in repentance. And then to give a modern example, many of you know uh, Pastor John Piper. I've uh, listened to uh, his podcast or books. Uh, but what you might not know is that John Piper had to excommunicate his own son, Abraham, from their church because he was living in unrepentant sin. And uh, they followed this pattern uh, given in Matthew 18. And I'm going to read uh, first John's account of what happened, and then Abraham uh, wrote later about his seeing the other side of it. So uh, I'm going to read this to you. In a recent Christianity Today interview, John Piper recounts the painful events surrounding the excommunication of his 19-year-old son, Abraham. The night after excommunication, I called him at 10 o'clock and said, Abraham... You knew this was coming. He said, that's what I expected you to do. That has integrity, and I respect you for doing it. From then on, for the next four years, he was walking away from the Lord, trying to make a name for himself in disco bars as a guitarist and singer, and doing just about anything but destroying himself. We were praying like crazy that he wouldn't get somebody pregnant or marry the wrong person or whatever. He came back to the Lord four years later, and the church had a beautiful, beautiful restoration service. He wept his eyes out in front of the church and was restored. This is church discipline at its best. And this is Abraham's side of it. He says, when I was 19, I decided I'd be honest and stop pretending that I was a Christian. At first, I pretended that my reasoning was high-minded and philosophical. 
but I really just wanted to drink gallons of cheap sangria and sleep around. For four years of this, and I was strung out, stupefied and generally pretty low, especially when I was sober or alone. My parents, John and Noel Piper, who are strong believers and who raised their kids as well as any parents I've ever seen, were brokenhearted and baffled. I'm sure they were wondering why the child they tried to raise was such a, a ridiculous screw-up now. But God was in control. On Tuesday morning before 8 o'clock, I went to the library to check my email. I had a message from a girl I had met a few weeks before, and her email mentioned a verse in Romans. I went down to the Circle K and bought a 40-ounce count of Miller High Life for $1.29. Then I went back to where I was staying, rolled a few cigarettes, uh, cracked open my drink, and I began to read R Romans. I wanted to read the verse from the email, but I couldn't remember what it was, so I started at the beginning, and by the end of the, uh, at the beginning of the book. And by the end, time I got to chapter 10, the beer was gone, the ashtray needed emptying, and I was a Christian. The best way to describe what happened to me that morning is that God made it possible for me to love Jesus. When he makes this possible, at the same time gives you a glimpse of the true wonder of Jesus, it is impossible to resist his call. So this is what this looks like. It happens nowadays, and it happened back in the church in Corinth. And this is the model that Jesus prescribed for church discipline. And it is extremely tough, but this is extremely gracious too. And so this is our, this is our text for today. But from this text, say, what does this have to be, do with being a church member? Well, there are six implications from this text that really illustrate well what the church does and who they are. Um, but two assumptions below that. Number one, there is a such thing as a local church. Amen? There was a, a body to be brought into, and there was a body to be taken out of. This is proof. God has appointed the local church and has given them elders and deacons and members. And two, church membership is an office, not a status. I say that again. Church membership is an office, not a status. In the same way that God has called men to be elders and deacons, he has called his people to be in membership in the local church. This covenant membership comes with sacred, God-given responsibilities and authority. Realize, church member, that God has given you authority. He's given you, as we read in Matthew 18, the keys of the kingdom. And now he's also given us sacred responsibilities, and six of them are here. So really quickly, I'll, I'll say these twice. One, is a church member, God, uh, it is your responsibility to submit to the elders when they are not leading you into sin or disobedience. That's an important caveat. As a church member, it is your responsibility to submit to the elders when they are not leading you into sin or disobedience. Paul is writing as an elder or as a pastor to the church to instruct them. The reason this entire book exists is because it assumes that the church is to submit to the leadership of the elders. He is telling them what to do in this situation. He is leading them to Jesus' teaching. And it is their responsibility to submit to the elders in this. Um, the author of Hebrews also writes in, chapters, in chapter 13, verse 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your soul, as those who will have to give an account. So... Your first responsibility as a church member is to submit to the elders when they are not leading you into sin or disobedience. Okay? Your second responsibility, too, as a church member, it is your responsibility to guard the doctrine of the church. Let me say it again. That's a heavy one. 
it is your responsibility to guard the doctrine of the church. The Corinthian church was not following the commands of Jesus. Whether this was at the elders' behest or whether this was the church itself, the church was held accountable for it. We also see this in Galatians. Paul says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It is the Galatians' responsibility. It is the Colossians' or it's the Corinthians' um, responsibility to not be led astray, but to hold their elders accountable to the word, to guard the doctrine of the church, to not go astray. That is on the members as well as the elders. Three, as a church member, it is your responsibility to recognize and affirm members into this local body. Again, we've been given the keys of the kingdom. It is your responsibility to recognize members into this body. Over the next few weeks, or next week, we'll be distributing our constitution and church covenant for you to look over. And then, to become a member, you will sit down with an elder and go over those documents to understand them, to ask questions, to help understand them as best as you can. And then, if you've agreed to covenant with us, then you will be brought before the covenant family. And we'll stand together and recognize God's call in your life and say, this person is a member of Christ's church. This is a beautiful thing. This is our responsibility as members. God has given us this privilege to recognize people as members of Christ's church. Four, as a church member, it is your responsibility to build relationships with other church members in which we can pray for one another, confess our sins to one another, repent together and care for each other's souls and challenge one another when it comes to sin. We don't know what happened here in the Corinthian church, but somewhere along the, the lines, they stopped challenging this man with a sin. They stopped um, repenting together of a sin. He didn't have brothers who loved him enough to warn him of the hardening power of the sin. May that never be the case at Christ's church. It is your responsibility to build relationships in which we can confess our sins together, in which we can pray for one another, in which we can be real. Punitive church discipline need never happen where there is constant repentance. This, this, this process of handing someone over to Satan, that would never get to its final place if there was repentance. So let us repent together. Five. As a church member, it is your responsibility to, if need arises, remove people from the body who by their unrepentant sin have proven themselves to not be brothers and sisters. It is our collective responsibility to do this. This is what we have read in 1 Corinthians 5. It is our responsibility to, if need arises, remove people from the body who by their unrepentant sin have proven themselves to not be brothers and sisters. And lastly... As a church member, you are to live your life as a missionary, engaging the people of this world with the gospel. Let's look again here at Paul's caveat in verses 9 and 10. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. So far from telling us not to associate with sinners, Paul is telling us to associate with sinners, to go and engage people with the gospel. In fact, Jesus commanded this in Matthew 28 when he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
Go therefore. Go, not hide. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We are not to bury our heads in the sand and hide from sinners. Rather, we are to view ourselves as missionaries, God's messengers in every place and situation and time. So, with those being said, church membership is a huge deal, is it not? It's an important gift that God has given to his people. It's an office that comes with responsibilities, sacred God-given duties. And over the next uh, few weeks, as we are reviewing those documents, as you are sitting down with elders, I pray for you to consider um, whether God is calling you to be a member of this church. We would love to see his body become apparent here at Christ Church. So let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much. By your sacrifice, you have made for yourself a people. You have made us all priests to your kingdom. You've given us God-given responsibilities. So Jesus, I pray that over the next few weeks that you would, again, that you would make it apparent, that you would bring it to our minds, those who are to be members of this church, and that we would celebrate and recognize their call together. And God, we thank you for making people new as we're going to be recognizing today in baptism that you have made leavened lumps unleavened, that you have removed the hardening power of sin and the judgment for sin and that you are making people righteous even now. So Jesus, we celebrate your sacrifice. We celebrate your work, Holy Spirit, that you make people new. And God, as we celebrate this today, would you... Would you be glorified in Jesus' name? Amen.